Project Rescue is rooted in the history of this ancient land. For a thousand years, there have been girls trafficked out of the tribes of Nepal to the harems of the kingdoms of India. In India, women are not considered equal. They're considered, in many cases, children of a lesser god. Fifteen years ago, Project Rescue was born in Bombay, India. Now in Europe and in the Middle East and in Asia, Project Rescue is impacting this generation of young women who have been sold into sexual slavery and forced prostitution. Last year, 19,000 young women were touched by this ministry. It was giving value to the girls who are not considered valuable, but God considers them valuable. They're His daughters. The key to rescuing women and children from sexual slavery is relationships. Because of this relationship that we've been building, they'll open the home for us to come and teach others the Bible studies. The customer would come, the rotten owner would tell the customer, you wait, they're having a Bible study. You know, just like we are being part of their life, we are there to help them. <laughs> When a woman or a child is rescued out of the red light district and comes into a project rescue home of hope, she begins to get the medical, the physical care she needs over a period of time. But she's also given an education, vocational training, and preparation to begin a new life in Jesus Christ. Prevention has been a key part of Project Rescue's strategy from the very beginning. There are trainings to help people in the local church realize what is happening whenever any little daughter of a woman in the red light district is given to us to have a new life in a home of hope. That's prevention. We just completed our first ever conference in the city of Delhi. Over 80 leaders, church leaders, came together for the first time to hear about this huge need. We are gonna see thousands of women and children find freedom and new life in Jesus Christ. It's quite easy to physically rescue a woman or a child from the brothel. It's another thing to take them out of that and bring them into new life where they have a chance for a new future in Jesus Christ. Thank you for being a part of the solution, getting beyond talking to action. Thank you. Well, good morning. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, from an off-site campus or on the internet, wherever you happen to be, uh, maybe one of the venues here at Long Point. We're glad that you're along this morning on Freedom Weekend. How have you cooked out on 4th of July? Anybody? Yeah, we had, listen, this is what the Surratts did. We took all of our grandkids, which is 13, all their parents, plus we invited all of our family in. My father is here, uh, Hubert Surratt, who just turned 80 yesterday. And uh, yeah, and 
so, so we had about 40 people, and we said, what can we do? Well, let's invode, invade a neighborhood pool, which made, which made it fun for everybody else there. And then they anointed me as the, as the cookout guy for all those people. So I'm there cooking on a hot grill on the hottest day of the year, thinking, um, I didn't learn what I needed to when I grow up, grew up, or I'd have been a little, little sharper about that decision than I am now. But I love Fourth of July, I love freedom, and we're talking freedom this weekend. Now, let me tell you what we've got going on. Um, as you guys know, from time to time, I will invite one of my friends uh, to come and share with you. Now, it's not like we need more speakers. We've got some great speakers here. Josh Walters did a great job last weekend, and, and we've got some awesome young speakers. But I have friends that from time to time, I want them to come because they have something specific I want you to hear. And that is the case this weekend. I have my friend David Grant uh, with me. Now, he's a very old friend, okay? Um, he's been a friend of mine for 42 years, and he's a lot older than I am. And so you guys be nice to him if you would, all right? Just be nice. Really, we've been friends for a long time. He was kind of my hero growing up. He uh, was a youth evangelist, uh, did all the youth camps uh, that I went to and youth camps around America and around the world. And when he would come to Denver, Colorado, he would stay in our home. And it was kind of like, you know, having this kind of celebrity in our home. He was a great influence to me, great guy. I want you to hear his story. I was at um, um, a uh, human trafficking event in a symposium in New York City in Manhattan just a few months ago. And uh, David is the one that hosted it. And I said, you've got to come to Charleston. I want my people to know who you are. I, I want you to tell your story, and I want you to tell you what, tell them what you're involved in now. He's been involved in ministry in India for 44 years. There's so much um, responsible for thousands of churches, hundreds of thousands of people. And then God touched his life in a specific way. And so I want you to, I want you to hear that today. So would you stand to your feet, hear it at the campuses, give a huge Seacoast welcome to David Grant, my friend, as he comes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you and good morning. Welcome. Thank you very, very much. God bless you. You may be seated. What a joy. Fourth of July, Freedom Weekend. Freedom Weekend. And I am one of those free people. I'm a preacher's kid from Pensacola, Florida, who's been saved 150 times. We got saved every Sunday because my father was one of these preachers like Hubert Surratt who preached on the rapture. Jesus is coming tonight at midnight, and none of you are going. You're all going to be left behind. And the only hope they gave us was if you would come to the altar right now, you might have a chance. We were the eternal insecurity people. <laughs> I think we twisted the scriptures. Straight is the way, narrow is the gate, and nobody finds it. <laughs> Two shall be in the bed, neither will go. Two will be at the well, neither will make it. Heaven's going to be a desert because nobody's going to be there because nobody qualifies. Now, those are extreme statements. Because some of us came out of very guilty, guilty, fearful feelings. And there is a scripture that I have for you on July the 4th weekend that is so powerful and so wonderful. It's on the screen. Our scripture today is Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1. And I want you to say it with me. I want you to read it with me slowly and carefully. I love reading scripture slowly 
so that its impact can be powerful in our lives. But this is important to me because of my childhood and because of all of life. Guilt, condemnation, shame is some of the greatest struggles that we all have. But God has an answer. Let's read it together. Romans 8, verse 1. Say it with me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's do it again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Let's move on down to Romans 8, 26 and read together. In the same way, join me. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And then most of us <coughs> have memorized Romans 8, 28. One of the most powerful scriptures in all. Let's read it together. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Now notice, all things are not good. Nobody said all things are good. But God works in all things for our good. All things are not good. But the fact is God is at work in all things for our good. And then let's move to Romans 8.31. What, say it with me, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Then for our last scripture, Romans 8.37 no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, when it comes to Scripture, my recommendation is the 39 verses of the 8th chapter of Romans is the greatest memorization you can do at any time. Those 39 verses have the heart of the gospel and the heart of our relationship with God, one of the greatest chapters May I encourage you to memorize Romans 8, verses 1 through 39. I grew up in church. My father preached against everything. So what could we do? Nothing. Where could we go? Nowhere. Where did we spend our time? Church. And services lasted forever. Now, Hubert Surratt is a great preacher, and he's doing better. Wednesday night he spoke. I hear he did a wonderful job, wonderful job on Wednesday night. Yes. God bless you, Hubert. But when Hubert was younger, he preached long sermons. And when you look at Greg Surratt and you look at me, you know he looks older than I do. He's just had a rough life. <laughs> it's been tough. And growing up with, you know, his dad, I preached not only for Hubert, I preached for Hubert's dad. 
Greg's grandfather and grandmother in West Los Angeles, California. So I've been part of this family for a long time, and I love them. And I can say to you that Greg Surratt is one of the greatest communicators of the good news of any place in the world. He has been with us all over overseas ministries, and we love Greg Surratt. We love Greg and his family, his wife, his children, and the absolute huge number of grandchildren. Absolutely incredible. Just everywhere he goes, he shows these pictures of all these little blonde-headed little granddaughters. And everybody just goes, wow! It's just, just amazing. And let me say it right here so I don't forget it because, you know, this has been the fourth service and my mind is playing tricks on me. My mind is saying you've already told this three times. And so, you know, I'm skipping things because I feel like I've already said all these things. And so, but grandparents' brains turn to mush. <laughs> my dad raised five children, four boys and one girl with one philosophy. Boys, you got the devil in you. And we're going to get him out of you. We will pray him out of you or we'll beat him out of you. But he will go. <laughs> that was my childhood. But 14 grandchildren came along who could do no wrong. <laughs> Suddenly, my dad changed. Man, the man that I feared would take me out of this world suddenly was looking at me going, Don't touch that child! He's at grandpa's house and do as he pleases. <laughs> Burn the house down. It's okay. <laughs> what happens to grandparents? And it has happened to me. I now have two grandchildren. Little Judah Grant Schultz. 17-month-old grandson. Oh, man. He sees me and goes, Papa. I go, yeah, man, if they touch you, I'll kill them. <laughs> and now we have little Gemma Elise Barrett, our one-year-old granddaughter. And you'll understand when this message is over why these are so important to me in so many different ways. But I grew up in church. And uh, my dad preached against television. He said, you know, television is like a commode sitting in your living room, <laughs> flushing sewage in the minds of your children. So we had to sneak off to the deacon's house to watch TV. <laughs> when the kids got together to play games, the only game we knew how to play was church. And I was the preacher, six years old. Our cat died. We put him in a shoebox, and I preached him right into heaven. It was a wonderful funeral. It was so good, we dug him up the next day and did it all over again. <laughs> the third day we dug him up, Mama caught us. She said, bear that cat and leave him in peace. We cried because we heard a cat had nine lives. And our cat only got three funerals. We were living way out in a rural area and dad bought a dozen chickens, put them in the backyard. Sunday night was a water baptismal service in our church. The next day, my brother said to me, the chickens aren't going to heaven. They haven't been baptized. I said, I will baptize the chickens. We couldn't find the water, but Dad had a big container of gasoline beside the house. Dad came home, and all the chickens was dead. He shouted, who killed the chickens? I said, we didn't kill them. We baptized them. And God took them to heaven. That was my childhood. <laughs> 
And not only was that part of it, but missions was a part of our life. All these world missions people, people who would travel and live and minister all over the world would come and stay in our home. And Greg, I'm sympathetic to who I stayed at your house. But they would come to our house, sit around our dining room table and tell stories till midnight. And the five of us kids would sit there totally captivated by the stories of around the world. How God wanted to change people's lives and bring freedom to them. One of those ministers, my name was Charles Greenaway, came to my dad's church when I was 12 years old. And he told the story of a 12-year-old boy who, in one of his services, at the end of the service, we would always take a missions offering. And when they passed the offering pan that night, this 12-year-old boy took the offering pan and said, Jesus, I don't have any money, but you can have me. And he laid the offering pan on the floor, and he stood up in the offering pan. And Charles Green always said that was the greatest missions offering we ever received. A 12-year-old boy standing in an offering pan. And when he told that story, I was 12. When they passed the offering pan at the end of that service, I said, God, if that other little boy can do it, so can I. And I laid that offering pan on the floor, and I stood up in it. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my 12-year-old heart and said, David, I want you to go to India. And from that day till today, at the age of 68, I have spent 44 years in India. It has been the dream, not only there, but all over Asia, Nepal, Bangladesh, and in the Middle East, and in the Far East, and in Africa, and in Europe, and in Latin America. These 44 years have been a journey of faith. At 17, I said, God, I want to give you 13 years. You get every day and every dollar of my life. Every dollar goes to missions. Every day goes to missions. I will not marry. I'll not buy a piece of property. I'll not make any investments. It's all yours. I turned 30 years of age, and I'd given over $250,000 of my personal income to missions. It was only $400 a week, but I gave it all. I didn't have a wife, so I didn't have any bills. Didn't have any kids. I could just give it all. I was free. I didn't make any investments. I didn't buy any property. I just gave it all. And then God brought Beth into my life. You saw her on the video screen. I was preaching at a youth camp in Pennsylvania. And Beth and her first husband, Brian, were in that camp. They were worship leaders. We became great friends. I left that camp and went back overseas for a year. Right after that camp, Brian was killed in an accident. Beth became a widow at 25 years of age. I came back from overseas a year later to find out that Beth was a widow. And I called her. And I'll never forget the conversation. I said, how are you doing? I'm so sorry I didn't know that Brian died a year ago, but how are you doing? And I heard her talk about sadness, grief, and then she went on to say, but David, Brian belonged to God, and I belong to God. We're like currency in the hands of God. We've given ourselves to him. He can spend us however he pleases. We are his. 
a sense of abandonment. All my life I've heard people talk about my life, my dreams, my happiness, my fulfillment, my home, my car, my money, my job, my ministry, my wife, my children, my husband, mine, mine, mine. Now, it's not all bad, but there's an attitude there. None of those things actually belong to us. We are actually the stewards of all of those things. We're the steward of our marriage, the steward of our children. Our children are not our possessions. They are entrusted to us for a short period of their life. We belong to God. Our children belong to God. I would like to illustrate this for a moment. Our first daughter was born, Rebecca, who is now working in Asia. And I'll tell you her story. But when she was three weeks old, I brought her to my father's church for him to dedicate her. And <laughs> let me see if I can come back to that in a minute. Greg, remind me to come back to that because i got to finish something else before going back to Rebecca's dedication. This is the last service, so we can just be a little more relaxed, okay? Because I first have to tell you how that I developed this friendship with Beth. After that first phone call, I would call occasionally just to see how she was doing. And the phone calls got more numerous and longer and more frequent. By the end of that second year, I had called her 200 times. And I would rather talk to her than anybody. So one night I was praying. I said, Lord, I'm 31 years old. I'm willing to be single and give you every dollar like I've been doing for almost 14 years. But if you ever want me to get married, I've got a recommendation for you. <laughs> There's this young widow in Philadelphia named Beth Schaefer. And when I said that, God spoke to me and said, that's the girl you're going to marry. I grabbed the phone and called my daddy. I said, I'm getting married. <laughs> he said, to whom? I didn't even know you were going with somebody. I said, I've never gone with her. What is she like? Wonderful. What does she look like? Beautiful. But I haven't seen her in two years. And the last time I saw her, she was married to somebody else. But she's the one. He said, I'll be praying for you. I hung up with dad and I phoned Beth. I said, Beth, can I take you to lunch tomorrow? I was in the Midwest and she was in Philadelphia. I had to leave for Asia that next night for six months. And I figured I got to settle this today. I flew to Philadelphia the next morning, and she agreed to go to lunch with me, and I took her to lunch and proposed. I said, I know this is going to sound strange, but I prayed through about it. It's God's will. I love you, and I'm going to marry you. She said, and you're entitled to your opinion. I said, I'm not actually, I'm not officially proposing. I'm just telling you, I'm leaving tonight for six months overseas. And I just want you to know when I come back, I'm coming back for your answer. And in the meanwhile, I want you to know you're spoken for. <laughs> I took off to Indian Rotor every day for six months and asked her not to write me back. I said, let me write and build a foundation of trust beneath you. You can learn to love and trust again. For God is a God of new beginnings. God honors the past, and God is the God of the past, and God's God of the present, but he's also the God of the future. He's the God that the future lies with him. 
Six months later, I flew back from overseas straight to Philadelphia, sat at the same table and said, what do you think? She said, well, the Lord has spoken to me and I will marry you. I said, amen. <laughs> I will not put you under pressure. Take all the time you need. But 10 weeks from now, you and I are scheduled to be back overseas. <laughs> and thousands of people, if you don't go, they'll miss heaven. <laughs> Nine weeks later, we were married. And a week later, we were in India. And then I discovered in many cultures the role of a widow is not a wonderful role. The role of orphans is not a happy role. In many cultures, not to have a father nor a husband takes away your total identity. Without a husband, without a father, you are nobody. But then I discovered that there are scriptures that are so important. One that says, God is the father of the fatherless. And the fatherless can say, he's my dad. He's my heavenly father. And the scripture says that he is the husband to the widow. God himself takes responsibility and says, I am the husband, the identifier, the covering. I'm the husband of the widow, God himself. Something wonderful happened. And then God gave us two daughters. And that's what I want to focus on the next couple of moments is the value of the girl child and the protection for the girl child. My dad was delighted when I went overseas at 22 years of age. He stood at the airport in Pensacola. It was back before they had all this security 44 years ago. And he said, let's pray. Now, Dad's prayers were always loud. There was 400 people at that gate seeing their friends off on that flight. And Dad threw his head back and said, God, David's going to India. 400 people knew I was going to India. He got me ready to live die, the rapture. He covered me with the blood, the plane with the blood, the pilot, the co-pilot, the navigator. Everybody got covered with the blood that day. He prayed 10 minutes. He finished praying and the gate agent cleared his throat and announced the flight. He was waiting for dad to finish praying to board the flight. We got on the plane, the businessman sat down beside me and leaned over and said, is that your dad? I looked at him, tears running down his face. Choked voice, he said, don't be embarrassed. I haven't heard a prayer like that in 25 years. He said, I grew up in church in Atlanta, Georgia. When my dad died, and I was angry at God. And I walked out of my dad's funeral and swore I'd never darken the Dover Church again. And I haven't. But he said, I stood at that airplane gate. And your dad began to plead the blood. He said, it wasn't even your dad's voice. He said, in my ears, I could hear my own dad praying the same prayer. He said, mysteriously, I felt an arm go around my shoulder. I haven't felt 25 years. And while your dad prayed, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. He said, I'm back under the blood by the time I was crying. And I was thinking of the song, the blood will never lose its power. And I thought, he's a God who never forgets a prayer.
Your prayers are never, ever ignored nor forgotten by God. Nine years later, his dad sent me to overseas with joy. And then Beth and I married. And he sent Beth with me with joy. And then four years later, Rebecca was born. And as I was started to say a moment ago, I brought Rebecca for dad to dedicate. He took that little grandbaby in his arms and said, you're not taking her. <laughs> you and Beth can go. And she stays with grandpa. Because that's a terrible place over there. It wasn't terrible for me. It wasn't terrible for Beth, but the granddaughter. Oh, no. Different world. And it spooked me. Honestly, it spooked me. And that night I was praying. I said, God, we're taking a little girl to a very dangerous part of the world. And am I foolish? And God spoke to me clearly. And he said, when you dedicated her this morning, was that just a religious ritual? Or did you really give her back to me? No, no, I said, God, we gave her back to you. He said, then you take this little girl that you just gave to me and you go on overseas because I don't change when you cross an ocean. I'm the same God there that I am here. And the safest place for your daughter is the center of God's will. And my will is not dependent on geography. You can be in Charleston, South Carolina, and out of the will of God, and in the most dangerous place you'll ever be in your life. Or you can be in the most dangerous place in the world, in the center of God's will. And that can be the safest place you can ever be. Both of our daughters and our family's friends of Mother Teresa we would take them in Calcutta over to visit Mother Teresa and she'd sit them down, one on each side, and pray over them. When our younger daughter graduated from nursing school, she went back to Calcutta and worked in Mother Teresa's home with a dead student dying. She said, Dad, I'm, we medical people, we wear gloves, you know. But she said, when I ministered to those little women brought in out of the slums to die in the home of destitution, she said, I had to take the gloves off so I could cradle their face in my hands whisper in their ear his name is Jesus and you will see him very soon our older daughter did her master's degree in using theaters therapy for abused children became part of project rescue and went overseas to rescue little girls out of the brothels when she was 25 years of age when she was 16 she said her first time she ever shared scripture our devotions was in a home of hope in Bombay. As she, a 16-year-old little American girl, sat with 16-year-old girls that had been rescued out of the brothels. They had been raped and brutalized and beaten and exploited. And here she was sitting there saying, he's the God of new beginnings. He's the God of new beginnings. After, when Rebecca went over 25, four years came back and married a young minister in Fort Collins, Colorado. Now they're going back overseas with their little baby boy. She was on the video with her mother at one of the interviews and with a dancing group. She uses art, music, dance, 
to bring healing to the hearts of those little girls. She has a blog called rescuearts.com, I think it is. She's into these arts, using them to bring healing to traumatized girls who've been trafficked. 20 years ago, when I stumbled into this trafficking out of Nepal into India, something burst inside of my heart. God said, I gave you two daughters. Now I want to give you thousands of daughters. Thousands of daughters. And Project Rescue was born. And now I see rescuing is not in itself the focus. That's the easier part. The hard part is how do you bring healing to broken lives? Geographically, you can bring them out of the brothel, but how do you take the brothel out of their memories and their hearts and their lives? We have a couple of books that's on a table outside. If you'd like to stop by, one is called Beyond the Sold Curtain, Project Rescue's Fight for the Victims of the Sex Slave Industry. It's the story of the girls who've been rescued and the story of their restoration. I love to say the restoration is the miraculous, not the rescue, the restoration. The story of girls who now many of them are married, happily married. Many of them are in the ministry. Many of them are nurses now and school teachers because God is the God of new beginnings. There's a second book called Beyond the Shame, Project Rescue's Fight to Restore Dignity to the Survivors of Sexual Slavery. These books are available, and we'll get some out to the other campuses so that next Sunday they'll Hopefully, there will be some available somewhere. Or we'll make sure that some way we get them available to those who may not be in the service here this morning. These books, we request a $5 donation for each book, simply to cover the cost of the book. It's a donation only. But these books, I believe, will influence your life. The second thing I want to mention, and I think we're out of T-shirts, actually, but for the girls graduating from high school, we have scores and scores of these girls who are now going off to college. And we decided to do a scholarship T-shirt. And that scholarship T-shirt's 20 bucks. Many colors, many sizes. You can do it online at projectrescue.com. We have raised $100,000 for scholarships to send them to college off T-shirts. It's a matter of just saying, what can I do? What can I do to make a difference? And in these books are the stories of miracles of how God brought restoration to their lives. Our daughters opened our eyes to a world of girls. Now I have a little one-year-old granddaughter. And I stand here today to conclude this message on Freedom Weekend. And I want to talk about slavery. Slavery where millions and millions of little girls are trafficked in every nation of the world that I know of. There are no exemptions. We can talk about Nepal, the poverty, the girls that are sold, 
12 years old, $200 to a brothel. Bangladesh, Cambodia, Thailand, where 50% of the men who step off the plane in Thailand are there strictly for sex and nothing else. We can talk about rape as a, victim, as a weapon of war in Africa. The violence, the violence that is so violent, it's hard to even describe it. Latin America, the drug cartels are now into human trafficking. They say you can sell drugs one time, but you can sell a girl hundreds and hundreds of times. Our goal is not just to rescue a girl, it's to rescue a community. The madams, the pimps, the police, the rescue the whole community. Our goal is to transform a nation. Our goal is to believe God to bring freedom, not just physical freedom, but spiritual freedom to an entire nation. These are estimates. 900,000 Spanish men purchase prostitution services every day. Legalized prostitution now in most of Europe turned it into Europe, the continent of a brothel. A million girls from Africa trafficked into the European subcontinent, into the European continent. Germany, they say a million men a day. America, they estimate three million American men a day pay for prostitution services in the United States of America. This isn't freedom. This is not freedom. They estimate 300,000 American teenage girls in prostitution in this nation. Atlanta, Georgia has just been named as the number one child sex city available in America. Atlanta, Georgia. They're estimating 300 new teenagers are recruited every single week in Atlanta, Georgia for prostitution purposes. 98% of those 300,000 girls are controlled, enslaved by a pimp of which our music industry glorifies pimps. Our movie industry glorifies the exploitation and the rape and the violence. The violence on our screens is so violent and our children have become so immune that when I laugh about dad preaching against television, I go, we don't even say anything about it now because we're so immune to the violence. When one in every three American women will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime and we don't seem to be affected by this. And I look at a world of violence and I know that there's been someone in this audience this morning that has felt the force of a fist this week. Domestic violence is not outside the walls of this church, nor outside the walls of the campuses that I'm speaking to this morning. Domestic violence is a way of life among so many. Two o'clock this morning in the hotel, I heard screams down the hallway between a couple who were having Quite a physical altercation. It's epidemic. Epidemic. Within the violence of the world in which we live. That's why this morning I'm talking to you from Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. No guilt. No shame. 
to those who have come to the freedom and the liberty of Jesus Christ. But for those who don't know this freedom, for those who don't know this liberty, for those who have never been to the cross, for those who do not know the power of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, those who, as I look at the communion elements that are here, don't know the power of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that's our mission. That's our mission. To not only share with the whole world, but right here in Mount Pleasant and Charleston, South Carolina. That's our goal. Transform our world. To transform our world. I stood in a red light district church as a young 19-year-old girl stood. And she said, you can see the scars on my body that I've endured in the brothels. But you can't see the scars in my mind. My memories are like jagged glass from the violence and the rape. She says, but when Jesus took me, he washed my blood. And then he washed my memories. She said, those memories that were like jagged glass are gone. We helped her go to nursing college. She graduated the nurse and became a wonderful, wonderful nurse. A young minister came out of a drug culture himself. And he says, she's the one for me. We have both come out of darkness into glorious light. And I stood four years after hearing her testimony at her wedding at the same altar. He's the God of new beginnings. He's the God of healing. Hallelujah. Amen. One little seven-year-old girl was given to us out of a brothel. Her mother died and asked if they, we would take her. We'd been ministering in that brothel. She was dying. Her arms and legs big as my finger. Just a little girl was born into disease and darkness. Big, big dark eyes. Welcomed into our home of hope. Our doctor said, she won't be here long. I became her adopted uncle. I became Uncle David. Every free moment, she'd wrap her tiny little hands around my little finger and just kind of hold on, go to prayer meeting, go to meals. Came time for me to leave. And I took her arm. She felt like a feather. I said, honey, Uncle David's got to go. She said, I said, but I'll see you in a few weeks when I come back. She said, no, Uncle David, I won't be here when you come back. I will never see you again. Tears started down my face and my voice closed and choked up on me. And then she preached the greatest sermon I've ever heard. And I'll give it to you right now. She said, don't worry about me, Uncle David. I've got Jesus, and he's all I need. I sat her down, walked out, got on the plane, took off, and every church I went to, I shared her story and called her name. Thousands of people prayed for a miracle for that little girl. I confess I had very little faith. I flew back to that city a few weeks later, months later, and as I stepped out of the airport, a large group had come to greet me. And out of that group burst that little girl running down the sidewalk screaming, Uncle David. I swept her up in my arms and said the stupidest thing I've ever said in my life. What are you doing here? <laughs> she wasn't supposed to be there. I had given up and I'm ashamed to say it. She looked at me almost 
in my arms. She almost reproachfully said, Uncle David, I told you I've got Jesus. And he healed me. And he's given me a new family. I've got a new mommy. And for the first time in my life, I have a daddy. I have a father, Uncle David. And I stood there and I thought, how little faith can we have? God is reaching out with outstretched hands. And I want you to stretch out your hands to a loving Heavenly Father right now. As we conclude this service, stretch out your hands and say with me, Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for freedom on 4th of July weekend. I stretch out my hands to you for myself, my family, my nation, my community. Bring healing, Jesus. Bring healing. Drop your hand to your heart. And say with me, Lord Jesus, with all my heart, I believe on you. With my lips, I confess you're my Savior, my healer for my body, my relationships, for my family, and for the children of the world. In Jesus' name. Take your hands. And make a fist and say, this can bruise, this can hurt. Then open up your hand with mine and say, or this can bless, this can heal. Would you join me in a final prayer and lift your hands and say, Father, let these be healing hands. Let Seacoast Community Church be a place of healing. Every campus, every person the healing power of Jesus Christ on a community, on a nation, and on the children of the world. Take my hands, Lord Jesus. Take my hands and make them healing hands in Jesus' name. Amen.